I was informed last week that I have to preach last week's sermon again. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter... No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> when the tech don't get it right, that's just too bad. So we're all... Uh, for those of you at podcast world, you missed a sermon last week, and uh, you'll just have to study that or find contact with somebody that uh, can bring that forward. But I do want to share a little review. We've been looking at the relationship between the church, between the people of God and within themselves, going way back so many weeks ago now, within that battle that we have between our flesh and our spirit that he shares in verse 11 of 1 Peter 2. And then the necessity of having an honorable and righteous testimony to the world in our relationship with it at large, uh, that they might observe our good works, whether they want to um, recognize them or oppose them, that they might see them. And then, of course, we spent several weeks on our relationship to our government uh, and the necessities there that God places upon us and the limitations there as well. Our key verse has been verse 17, that we honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We then talked about the relationship between us and those in authority over us uh, in various realms and roles, remembering that we do not really have masters in the sense that was being used by Peter in this time. Uh, but yet we do have those that we have uh, in authority over us that we are understanding that they sometimes exercise that authority against us uh, and make our lives miserable and that our response is to continue to do good works, to not try to strike back, but to take it as we talked about. Last week we began to talk about our relationship with Christ, that we are the called, uh, that uh, we, we follow Christ's example uh, as recipients of the benefits of Christ's suffering, so we should view the world as potential benefactors of our suffering. That we do not suffer uh, in a selfish way that, that tries to glorify itself because I suffered so much, and therefore I must be more holy than someone else, but rather that we suffer purposefully for the benefit of others the opportunity to demonstrate to them the love of God, the peace of God, the joy that God gives us in the midst of suffering. So we take it, we take it patiently, we continue to do good, and then we look for God's commendation. This is what we've been called to do, that we follow in those steps, that we do not let our mouths betray us, that we do not curse those that curse us, but rather that we bless them that we do not speak evil of them, nor do we threaten them. That's another word used that we're going to see in our passage today. It's really where we ended was with that concept of threatening. That we do not revile those who revile us. That we do not respond in like kind. Uh, but we, what we do confront, we do rebuke, uh, and we do it in love. And that should be the testimony of our speech as Christ. Christ did not let sin go unaddressed. He simply did it in a, in a um, controlled and spiritual manner uh, rather than in the flesh. And again, this drives us all the way back to our first relationship, and that is between our spirit and our flesh. That we do not let the flesh dictate our responses and reactions to the evil of this world. 
we let our, the Spirit of God within us do that. And so we're going to continue today and finish up this section of Scripture that's the end of the chapter and look at the, another aspect of our relationship with Christ in these times. And so I invite you to uh, follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 21. Again, we looked at several of these. We were to finish this up, uh, last two and a half verses or so. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And this is where we pick up this week who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We find that once we look at the example of Christ in terms of what he suffered and how he reacted to those who were causing his suffering, that was shared in the first half, really, of verse 23, 23, right? Yep. Uh, the first two-thirds, if you will, that uh, he was reviled, did not re- revile in return. He suffered. He did not threaten. And we come to that last phrase that we really didn't handle last week, uh, that we also want to understand behind the uh, motivation of taking it. Uh, among the other things, Christ certainly had the joy that was set before him to endure the cross. And that joy was your salvation. He saw the benefit that could come to you by his suffering. And if we would all have that mindset from last week, that we are willing to endure suffering for the benefit of the lost. But there was another element to his capacity to endure suffering. To simply take it. Uh, to be as a sheep before its shears, the, the, we are told, is silent, so he does not open his mouth. And so that is the prophetic utterance. And so we find that there is another element, and that is who he was trusting. He had committed himself to the one who judges righteously, to the Father. The Father he knew would judge righteously. And therefore, he committed himself to that that I'm not looking for justice right here, right now, in the present. Because I understand the plan of God and the working of God is much bigger than my present circumstances. And so I've committed to myself that God, in the bigger picture, will always deal justly. He will always make sure that justice comes forward. He will always judge righteously is what the passage says he'll always do it right and while our time frame might not correlate with his time frame one of the most powerful elements of our enduring to take it from the world from our flesh from satan uh, is to uh, understand that god's justice cannot be thwarted not by satan not by the world they can seem to be avoiding it for the short term. And we have several psalms and wisdom literature that talk about that in Job. Uh, we have wisdom literature in Solomon that talks about that. How do the evil people get away with it? Well, they're not really getting away with it. And these are what this psalms, this is what the wisdom literature keeps coming back to. 
is that it might seem like they're prospering on the short term. It seems like they're successful in these things. It seems like they got the promotion and I didn't. It seems like they can do whatever they want and we're just always being victimized. It may seem like that, but those are all very myopic um, perspectives that you're just seeing the short term and right in front of you and, and, and really a pretty selfish view. And what Jesus does, and you can see that Jesus had that same uh, capacity in him to see it on the short term as well. We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. His prayer in Gethsemane, it, we share that prayer. Lord, if you could just make all these troubles pass by me, that would be great. Come on, honestly, how many of you prayed that way? You're sharing that prayer with Jesus, okay? So let's understand his capacity and his humanness was to say, you know, in the short term, I really don't want to suffer. <laughs> and, and I'm, we all share that. Suffering is not something we enjoy, but it's something we can take joy in and but we can endure. So how do we get past that myopic view of the immediate pain of suffering and Jesus Christ says here committed himself to God who judges righteously, to the Father. He, I, I, I'm committed. I cannot bring justice in this world. I cannot be the cause of it. I cannot force it. I, I cannot make that happen. This is Jesus Christ. And his understanding was is that this isn't just. But it is the working of God, and God's justice will be right one day. And it is that which enables us to endure, to take it. And this is not an attitude, oh, I can't wait till these people burn in hell for what they... No, it is an attitude that says, this will all be rectified by God in the end. And, and quite frankly, if anything, your suffering is brief compared to God's justice on the wicked. Put in perspective, how many lifetimes will they be suffering in the lake of fire? You see how short your suffering is? In comparison. So God's justice is, is more than capable of dealing with this. And that's one of the elements in our hearts and our minds that needs to be there. Not only the idea of ministry, that I can suffer and therefore minister to others by this mechanism of suffering, sharing Christ in my countenance, in my, in my uh, refusal to get revenge and to, and to bite back and to threaten back, but to take it and to take it patiently and with, and with peace but also, certainly that ministry is a driving force for Christ, but there's also this underlying peace that comes by understanding the Father can take care of this. And we see this in Revelation. We see it where the martyrs are there, the ones who gave their lives for Christ, calling out, how long until you judge the earth, O Lord? How long is it going to be? And, and God says, just Rest a little while till everyone gets killed that needs to be killed, and then you'll see some things. And boy, did they see some things. By the time you get to chapter 8, wow, God's justice, his wrath is incredible, 
and, and it just dumbfounds all the residents of heaven, literally. And so we see that Christ himself, and I, I still think Peter's pointing back to Gethsemane here, committed himself to the justice of the Father. I'll endure these things knowing that it will be set right one day. Not only in terms of judging the evil for the evil they have done, that is one aspect of it, but also of glorifying those who have endured wickedness while doing righteousness. And so God is going to glorify the Son. Correct? The Son glorified the Father on earth, and Jesus Christ is foreseeing, I'm committing myself to the justice of God, not only to deal with the wickedness of men so that I don't have to deal with the wickedness of men, God will take care of that, but also to reward the endurers of, righteousness, or of, of suffering for righteousness' sake. God will be the rewarder of that. He, he takes notice of that. And again, I go back to this scene in heaven, and I say, who are the closest people to the throne of God? Who have the very ear of God uh, during the time we are waiting for God to outpour his wrath? It is those who have suffered most severely at the hands of men have the closest presence to the throne in heaven. They are directly under the throne of God, the martyrs of the saints. And so we find that God is, knows how to uh, reward that, and he knows how to judge that. And Jesus Christ just said, I commit myself to you. And thus, men crucified him, God raised him from the dead, and then exalted him above all men. Oh, we would be willing to recognize, I can endure this for the exaltation that is coming. And it's really not that rare. Uh, you all endure a lot of things for the, the, the reward of a paycheck at the end of the week, or two weeks, or month. You endure a lot of things, right? Maybe things you don't even enjoy. Why? For the benefit at the end. Athletes go out there and endure ridiculous pain and suffering, <laughs> beating their bodies into subjection, uh, to try to tone themselves up for a reward at the end. They're doing it so they can achieve an earthly crown. How is it that we are not capable of understanding that I can endure this with an expectation I have as a goal, something in the next realm, in the heavenly realm? And we have been pointed to that over and over again throughout Scripture, that this should be one of the driving elements of our willingness to suffer and to just take it. And again, this needs to have our spirit rule our flesh, because our flesh isn't like that. Our spirit has to subject the flesh. Just like the athlete has to put his body under subjection, so we in a spiritual realm have to bring our bodies under subjection. They're natural Reaction is always going to be self-interest. It's always going to be violent. It's always going to be threatening. It's always going to be, I'm going to get back. I'm going to try to one-up them even. And the Bible says, no, let your spirit, the spirit of God, rule over you. And so Jesus Christ committed himself to the one who judges righteously. And now we get into, uh, that's, that's Jesus, okay, our example. So now we move forward into understanding 
uh, what this all meant for us personally. And see, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. We're going to stop there. We're going to get into the shepherd aspect here shortly. Uh, But I want to talk about this very important verse uh, nestled in here. It is one that I had to memorize as a young person, very young, probably eight years old. This is one of the verses that that just stuck in my mind all most of my life since then, who himself bore our sins in his own body. All right, so we have the, the, his willingness to take on in his flesh the weight of your fleshly sin. His flesh knew no sin. But he himself bore our sins in his own body. And so his body literally, and and this Peter's teaching here is very clear, he became sin for us in his flesh. Now those that try to split Jesus up into his human side and his God side, which is really not a good thing to do. Uh, It's like splitting up the the triune God and, and, and making them very different from each other, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're one God. Jesus Christ is one flesh, one person, and uh, as you are, you have a spiritual as well as a physical. Um, And so Jesus Christ, in his flesh, became sin. And you cannot divorce that from saying, well, his flesh was touched with sin, but not his deity. Uh, Well, he is forever going to be in the flesh. He has a resurrected body. We'll see him, and no one sees the Father, but when we see the Son, we have seen the Father. He is God, and so in his flesh he becomes sin, and this is so far beyond our comprehension. How can a holy, holy, holy God become sin for us? And we only barely understand what that involves. How much humiliation was for Christ, how much pain it was for him, the separation between he and the Father, because he became our sin. He bore it on his own body. Now, why is this so important in this context? Because what you are doing when you are enduring the suffering of this world is you are bearing their sin. They are sinning against you. When you take it, you are carrying their sin. When you want to strike back at them, you want them to pay for their sin. When you bear it, when you take it, when you simply patiently allow it to happen to you without retribution, without trying to punish them for it, you are bearing their sin. Now, does that make them free of it? No. For whose sin did Jesus die? Everyone's. He bore the sin of all men. You sang that today. I think the last, the second hymn, the last, maybe, or third or fourth uh, thing was, you know, he, the fourth, the fourth verse. I believe he died for everyone, even if there was more sinners than the sand and the sea. Uh, you sang that, that his atoning blood covers it all. It is sufficient for all of them. So Jesus Christ became sin for man. It becomes uh, applicable to those who receive that 
sacrifice and apply that and, and, and receive that gift. So when we say that you're bearing their sin, it's not that they're not responsible for it and won't be judged for it. It's simply the idea that you are taking it on yourself to give them an opportunity to be delivered from their sin. You are becoming a little Christ. And we should start defining Christian a little different, shouldn't we? Once we start, because Christian just means little Christ. Well, little Christ means I want to bear the sin of my enemies. I'm going to carry them about my body. Paul talks about that in his testimony. I, I carry the marks in my body of the sin of other men. I mean, the guy was stoned, shipwrecked. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I, he was lashed. He, was, all those, he says, I bear the marks. Jesus Christ bore our sins. We are called to bear one another's burdens. We're going to talk about that a little later on um, when we get into the relationship with the brethren, which is in the next chapter about five weeks from now. But we're going to see also that I have an opportunity to bear the sins of those who are sinning against me. Knowing that their real gripe isn't with me, but with my Father. And thus, Peter wants to instill in us the idea that because we have identified ourselves with Christ, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He died for your sins. Now, we, since we have died to sins, might live for righteousness. That's wonderful. That Because he has taken our sin, paid the price for that, we have an opportunity. It doesn't say we will. We have an opportunity to live for righteousness because we have been healed by his stripes. That the marks of suffering on his body meant my sins were there and now I can be healed of the penalty of sin, death. This is wonderful. But I'm also, and, and again, this is reiterated by Paul who says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This is Peter's version of that verse, okay? This is how Peter says it. We have died to sin, and now we, can, we might live to righteousness because we have been healed. We have been made a new person, a new creature, we have the opportunity now, since we've been crucified to the flesh, that we can now be new in Christ and we can live righteously. And in the sense then, we can view all this suffering, we can view it all very differently than even the Old Testament view of Job that was trying to silence Peter, we talked, or silence Satan, that's what we talked about last week. But we're not using that as our example. We're using Christ as our example because we are there trying to uh, live righteously because we are healed and now we want to offer that to others. And so we again visit this whole concept if we simply meditate on what Christ has done for us that we might bear the sins of those who cause our injury. We bear their sin for their benefit that they might be healed because we've been healed. We have received an opportunity to do righteously and godly in this present world. 
We, that was because of Christ's suffering. And now if, if my suffering can help lead someone to Christ who otherwise wouldn't have been interested in, in even uh, pursuing it or investigating Christ, uh, but once they see someone being Christ-like, a little Christ, suffering without reviling, suffering without threatening, suffering and keep doing good, suffering and not wanting revenge, suffering and still praying for you, suffering and still faithfully pursuing peace. That might be their biggest opportunity to investigate Christ because of that testimony. And so we are cautioned here against the flesh that would never bear all of this to follow after Christ recognizing that Threatening, reviling is all of the flesh. It's sin. Because what you're saying is that I don't trust God to be just. I'm going to make justice my way today. Instead of waiting for God's justice, which is true justice for the future, and it also betrays the fact that you're not really interested in the deliverance of the people that are doing harm to you. Are you praying for those who persecute you? That's the command in Scripture. Pray for them. Now, I have to be careful about that because your prayer might be, God, get them. <laughs> make them miserable, make them evil. You know, not kill them. Um, no, you pray for them, not against them. Pray for them that persecute you, that devise all kind of evil against you. For this is the day of salvation. The day of judgment is coming. And God is the righteous judge. Well, then we move forward with that understanding of, of now we have, what, two or three very clear motivations that move us to endure happily? Because it's, it, it's, if I don't suffer, then they can't see my reaction to suffering, and so that limits their access to the gospel. Okay? So if I have a loved one or an enemy and they're going to make my life miserable because I'm going to stand for Jesus Christ and they hate that and yes, family members are listed in very clearly in Scripture that they might be the source of this problem, of this suffering, that they're going to alienate you, that they're going to even have you arrested and, and killed, uh, that when I take it patiently, when I have rejoicing in my heart that I'm going to keep serving God and I'm glad to suffer. Why am I glad to suffer? Not because I enjoy pain. I'm glad to suffer because it means they have an opportunity to watch peace in action. The peace of God, if it's real in our heart, should be evident. Your faith should be shown to men. And there's very few places better to show it than in the heat of persecution. When Jesus gave the parable of the soils and the seed and the sower, sower goes out there, sows the seed, some hand, rocky, the birds take it away, uh, some falls in other, on the roadside, the rocky soil, it springs up, and then what comes that, sh that exposes it as false faith is heat 
the sun comes up and it bakes it and it just shrivels up and dies because it has no root in it. What does that mean for the other ones? Do you think that one part of the field had the sun come up and shine on it and bake it and the other part didn't? Now, I've been gardening a lot of years. And I really have never seen that, you know, there's a little cloud. I know there in the pictures in the comics there's a little cloud there for one little part of the garden and not for the other. Um, and that seems like it sometimes like that in New Mexico. Um, but uh, it doesn't work that way, right? So if the heat of the day scorched these plants and, betray, and showed and betrayed the fact that they were just empty flower pots, they were just facades of faith. They weren't the real thing. They had no roots. Well, that same intense sun of persecution, once it shines on a plant that does have roots, now has a testimony because it endures. That same sun that scorched that plant, now this plant endures it because its roots are deep and it's drawing, not from the very little surface moisture, it's drawing from a well. And we sing a little song, Spring Up, O Well. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Oh, we would tap that in times of persecution and say, um, I'm not living on the surface. I've got a depth to me. Why? Because I understand God's justice. I understand what it means to bear the sins of others because Jesus bore my sin. And it cost him dearly. And I'm willing to pay the price to bear the people's sin so that they might receive Christ as their Savior. Or, if not, if they reject that, that they will get a true judgment of God that I'm incapable of, of making happen. But he is. Well, we come to another illustration, and with this we'll finish up this part of the relationships. We're going to move on next week into the familial relationships in chapter 3. Uh, and not really the whole family. We're not going to really talk about children. I know Colossians and Ephesians have a lot of information about children. It's really about marriage. So for the next five weeks, this is a little, little commercial. Next five weeks, marriage counseling. Okay, If you need it, be here. If you don't need it, be here anyway. Because I believe in preventative medicine. <laughs> so this is going to finish up. We have this other relationship described in the last verse here, and it's precious to Peter. You can understand it. And he says, listen, your relationship with Jesus is you're like sheep, and Jesus is a shepherd. You were past tense, like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And you know that Peter is just bringing to mind in the forefront of his thinking all these conversations he had with Jesus Christ. Um, we have it in John chapter 10, right? With that great, I'm the good shepherd passage. Just turn there real quickly. John chapter 10. I know we studied this extensively when we went through John, but let's just read it for good measure, shall we? Let's start off in verse 7, and we're going to read a lengthy passage all the way uh, to verse 18, I think. It says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Doesn't that sound wonderful? 
The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, who, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there may be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. Wow. You see the relationship there? We were the sheep that were going astray. If you want to put yourself in this verse, you were the sheep from another fold. They had to learn who the good shepherd was versus the hireling versus the thief. We have that comparison between three. The hireling that doesn't really love the sheep, just wants to get good stuff, but once there's a little threat, I'm gone, I'm out of here. I don't want to suffer for the sheep. That's a hireling. Is that what you are? I hope not. But rather that we are willing to suffer for the sheep, even laying down our life for the benefit of the sheep. And so we're not the hireling, we're not the thief. The thief is the one that comes in and wants to cause injury to sheep. They want to steal the sheep for their own interests. They, want to dis- they don't care about the sheep either. They really just want to prey upon the sheep. So you have a thief, you have a hireling, and then you have the good shepherd, the one that they hear his voice. And, and, and certainly, Jesus Christ says, they know my voice. We have that in other texts. My sheep hear my voice, they know me, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And so he has those, but, he, but he's not content with just these four no more. He says, I have sheep of another fold. And I'm going to lay down my life not only for these that I love and care for that are responsive and following me. I'm laying my life down for all the sheep. To open the door for all the sheep. And remember, he's the door. said that first. You're going to come into the sheepfold of God, into the family of God through Jesus Christ and him alone. And he's going to lay down his life not only for his own, but for all the sheep. I have sheep of other fold. And who are those other sheep? Whoever listens to his voice and responds. That's who they are. And so we were the sheep who went astray, who turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so in Peter's mind, he has this message. He has, he has all that is involved there. And of course, he has the command of Jesus Christ at the uh, before his ascension, uh, to Peter, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. And so we find this imagery very strong with Peter. We say, what does a fisherman know about sheep? Probably not a lot, but what he learned, he learned from the master teacher, Jesus Christ. He says, listen, we were sheep that went astray. But now, we turn to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus Christ did not suffer for you when you were his friend. He didn't suffer for you when you were 
predisposed towards him. He suffered for you when you were astray. When you were his enemy, when you hated him, he suffered for you. And this is why we endure suffering. In our relationship with God, Jesus Christ, we recognize that we were sheep going astray. Now we have returned. And so now we have an opportunity to be that and just share that with others. And I just want to talk a little bit about these two terms, the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Because it involves several mechanisms that we don't always associate with our role to the world, to the world that's being nasty to us, to the world that's opposing us. We don't often think of these things, that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let me, under, let me let, help you understand that. So a shepherd's job is essentially to make sure that the sheep are well fed and watered. Would you agree with that? His primary job is, you know, lead them by green pastures. And that's serene, and we think that's very pastoral, and that's just, uh, you, you know, you imagine the green, you know, the puffy clouds, and a nice day, and he leads them by green pastures along a little creek, and, and you say, that's just beautiful, Right? He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. Well, that's one job of the shepherd. But there's a second primary job. So he has two primary jobs. One's not subordinate to the other. Uh, one could take precedence over the other, and one could, depending upon the circumstances, right? The other job of the shepherd is protect the sheep. Certainly to provide for them, but to protect them as well. And this responsibility is when the real danger occurs, right? There's not a lot of danger in leading sheep along still waters and giving them pasture. Not it's not necessarily a very dangerous job, really. Um, sometimes the sheep get ornery and it's hard to do that, but, but you just grab them by the nap and just make them obey sometimes. And you usually make an example of one and everyone else follows. And so, provision isn't a dangerous task, but protection is extraordinarily dangerous. And the hireling, remember, Jesus said in John 10, avoids that job. They only do half the job. And there's a lot in the Christian community that only want to do half the Christian walk. They want to do the serene parts where I can pray and read God's word and, and, and just, you know, bask in the, in the warm glow of the Spirit. And we want that. And we want to go up the mountaintop. And I, I got a mountaintop. So I want to go up there and I just want to be away. And I just want to enjoy it. You know, I want to commune with God. And, and that's just wonderful. But that's half the job. And a hireling does that part well. That is not really the measure of the man. The measure of the man is the half where you are protecting the flock where I am going to risk my life, I'm going to stand between that bear and you, and I'm going to face the bear. And I will take what the bear throws at me so you don't have to deal with it. I'm going to stand between that thief and you 
to protect you. Only that we'd have an understanding that we all have that responsibility, not only to one another within the fold of God, but even to those who are outside the fold, who are today what we were, going astray their own way. That we stand between their destruction and the enemy. And that means risking our very lives to do so. That we are going to endure hardship, we're going to be beaten, we're going to be ignored, we're going to be spat upon, we're going to be uh, abused, all because we want to protect these poor sheep from being obliterated by the enemy, stolen off by thieves. And so we stand. And again, we have some great Old Testament heroes like David, who understood what it meant. I'll take on the lion to guard my daddy's sheep. Are you willing to take on the lions of this world to guard God's sheep? Your dad, your heavenly father. Some of them are in the fold, some of them aren't in the fold yet. Because today is still the day of salvation. Are you ready to die for those who aren't yet in the fold? Who are just need to hear his voice and respond? This should be our view. And so when Peter brings forth this idea of shepherd, but then he also gives another term, and um, the term we see here is overseer. And you might say, well, what's the difference between an overseer and a shepherd? Uh, And the the term here is also bishop. It's episkopos. Episkopos? Episkopos. Anyway, it's Greek. And... (laughs) The Episcopalian Church is built off of this term. And so it's, it's the whole idea that um, you have responsibility for them. You're taking, so you're not only shepherding them in this very Gentile, genteel way that you're caring for them and you're staying, but you also have a responsibility as an overseer there, as a bishop of their souls, to uh, realize that Um, and this has a little bit more to do maybe with them wandering away, that sometimes the greatest enemy to sheep is sheep. Because they don't pay attention to the enemy. They'll wander right into a... They'll they'll wander right into a a pack of wolves. They'll just wander right into... Chomp, 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 chomp. And it happens. They'll wander right off the edge of a cliff. And it's recognizing that part of that shepherding or part of that overseeing them is to recognize they don't always know who they are and where they are and what the circumstances around them is. And you know what that result is? They'll never thank you. Because many times they didn't even realize how much danger they were in. They won't thank you. Not at least on this side of glory. And you find that we have a responsibility to oversee, uh, to bishop, if you will, their souls. That God puts us on that, that if Christ is the ultimate overseer of our souls, that we share in Christ. Remember, this whole thing is about Christ is our example. What he has done for us, we seek to direct towards others that they might receive it directly from, the, from Jesus Christ himself. So we're little, little bishops, we're little overseers. Um, we are those that have responsibility for the direction of their souls. So we have benefited from the chief shepherd, 
from the good shepherd in, in John 10, we are also benefited from our master, our Lord, our overseer, our episcopus, that oversees our life and gives it direction. And we understand to be part of the shepherding role, but Peter wants to pull that out separate. He's going to develop that later on in the book when he talks about the relationship with leaders within the church. And so this is a kind of important term for him to combine with the idea of shepherding. Shepherd is pastor. Overseer is bishop. We see that as the same role. Jesus Christ is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Ultimately, he is our shepherd, but we have under-shepherds, under-bishops. We're under Christ. And to some degree, we have the responsibility not to with, just within the fold, but to even to those who are not yet in the fold. They just simply need to hear his voice and respond. And so we have more reason and fullness of understanding here that we can endure. We are called to endure suffering. This is going to be developed by Peter. This is his, this, so we're dealing with two of his major themes together. Um, two of the three major themes of Peter, remember, two of them were relationships and enduring suffering. We're going to certainly come back to enduring suffering uh, when we get done with your marital counseling sessions uh, and your church relationship session. Uh, then we're going to come back to this whole idea of suffering. It's going to keep, it's a major theme. Uh, but this is the Christology, uh, Christological relationship that you have as your example. Follow Christ. Be little Christ. Be really Christians. Don't just do half the job. Don't be a hireling. Certainly want to feed one another, but we also need to protect one another. And sometimes that goes by standing be between them and the enemy, and sometimes it's being the overseer of the sheep. Because the sheep sometimes are their own enemy. Right? And we all admit that. Not only is there an enemy out there that can bring grief in our life, our own decisions can bring grief in our life, can't they? We can be our own worst enemy. And the overseer addresses that. And we're going to be seeing that developed by Peter when we get into the last chapter of this book and then into Second Peter as well. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this time in your word. We praise you for being our shepherd, our good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. We thank you for what you have suffered to become sin for us, that we might be free, free to live righteously and godly in this present world. But we look forward to that blessed hope when all will be made righteous and just. Lord, keep our eyes stayed there. Instead of on the evil of this day and what they're trying to perpetrate against your people, Lord, um, keep us from despair. Um, that we might be committed to you, knowing that you are just, but that you also are the Savior of all men. And Lord, keep us balanced in our engagement with the world and prepare us in our minds and hearts today by the study of your word and by the encouragement of one another to endure and to be filled with joy that we would be counted worthy of suffering for your name's sake. 
In Christ Jesus' name, amen.